1989. Democratic revolutions are sweeping the Soviet Union's Eastern European colonies. The Soviet Empire is starting to crumble. Two million residents of the Baltic states linked hands to send a message of defiance to Moscow today. The Soviets said they would re-examine the basic laws that bind their 15 republics together. In the Soviet Union, the reformers have triumphed and hardliners have suffered unprecedented defeats. It's a response to the Baltic republics and others who say there is too much central control in the Moscow. The breach in the Berlin Wall is the most palpable sign yet of change in the political landscape of Eastern Europe. I don't know if the term Iron Curtain uh, is dead, but it certainly appears to be coming The revolutions of 1989 found Volodya Putin in Dresden in East Germany. He was 37, a married father of two, and a lieutenant colonel in the KGB. On December 5, 1989, angry pro-democracy protesters surrounded the KGB residenter in Dresden where he worked, and Volodya Putin's world completely fell apart. Putin was trying to kind of burn all the papers so that his agents couldn't be betrayed. So he's burning lists of agents in the furnace and shoving them in so hard that the furnace burst. And, you know, he was trying to make sure the protesters couldn't infiltrate their building. So he's calling for backup from the Soviet military. And the Soviet military just say, look, we can't do anything unless we get the order from Moscow. And Moscow is silent. He said, It felt to him that they'd given up their empire. He said, it felt to me like the Soviet leadership had just abandoned us. We'd abandoned our position in Europe. Here's how Putin recalls that day in his autobiography, First Person. I got the feeling then that the country no longer existed, that it had disappeared. It was clear that the union was ailing and it had a terminal disease without a cure. A paralysis of power. I'm Julia Yaffe, and this is About a Boy, the story of Vladimir Putin. Chapter 4, The Big Brother. He was not a star. He had the worst KGB career of all of his friends. He was very mediocre. A lot of the things that we know about Vladimir Putin is things that Vladimir Putin wants us to know. They needed to really do an extreme makeover of his image and dress him up to make him seem more glamorous and dashing than he actually is. After that meeting, I told my mother, that's going to be our next president. And she didn't believe me. By 1989, the Soviet Union had lost its colonies. Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, and the other Eastern European satellite states of the Warsaw Pact were all gone. But soon the Soviet Union discovered that it couldn't even hold on to the republics within its own borders. Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, so brutally occupied by the Soviets in 1939, demanded to get out. So did Ukraine and Georgia. There was unrest in Armenia and Azerbaijan. Even Russia was starting to talk about independence. The Kremlin could do little to defuse these crises and hold the country together. It was little wonder. For all its rockets and tanks and nuclear weapons, the Soviet Union couldn't even feed its own population. Store shelves were empty, not because the country couldn't grow enough produce, but because about a third of it rotted in poorly ventilated warehouses. Meat, shoes, soap, winter coats, school notebooks, pretty much everything people needed for their daily lives became impossible to find. The Soviet command economy had stopped functioning, 
and the Soviet Union was dead broke. In December 1991, the leaders of Soviet Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia signed a treaty at Bilaverska Busha in the forest between Belarus and Poland. The treaty granted each of these Soviet republics their independence. It was over. On Christmas Day, 1991, the red Soviet flag came down over the Kremlin for the last time, and the Russian tricolor, red, white, and blue, went up. Over a decade later, Putin would call this moment the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the century and a genuine tragedy. President Bush from the Oval Office tonight extending formal recognition to Russia and five other former Soviet republics. The United States recognizes and welcomes the emergence of a free, independent, and democratic Russia led by its courageous president, Boris Yeltsin. People like Putin, they could not get their heads around the the country had disappeared on them. He says it's the kind of loss of all of his hopes and dreams, which is kind of ironic because it's hard to imagine how he would have become president of an independent Russia under those circumstances. This is Fiona Hill, a former Russia director on the National Security Council and senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. But he's still of that kind of group of people who thought that everything was working out pretty well for them. And then suddenly it wasn't. For Putin, he feels it's his generation that really lose out. And it's that sense of loss and grievance that shapes the man that we know now. You can see a direct line from him and the people around him of thinking, well, there's something wrong here that we need to put to rights and to put back again. After that terrifying day in Dresden, Putin and his family went home. So did thousands of KGB agents streaming back as the Soviet empire fell apart and their missions evaporated. Back in Moscow, Putin, like so many of his colleagues, found there was little for him to do. So Putin and his family moved back to Leningrad and into an apartment with his now elderly parents. He got a job at his alma mater, Leningrad State University, as an assistant rector for international affairs. In reality, though, it was a KGB position, and his job was to keep an eye on students, especially those visiting from overseas. It was a humiliating end to his dreams of being a heroic spy abroad, like Alexander Belov in The Sword and the Shield. Putin was eventually hired by one of his former law professors at the university, Anatoly Sabchak. Sabchak would go on to become the first democratically elected mayor of St. Petersburg, as Leningrad came to be called after the Soviet collapse. Here is Catherine Belton, author of Putin's People, how the KGB took back Russia and then took on the West. As the city's new mayor, Sobchak also knew that he needed connections with law enforcement, with the old guard, with the KGB. So he picked Putin to be his deputy. And essentially Putin was a link between this kind of rising democratic force and the people of the past. And in that position, Putin essentially went about kind of making connections with organized crime. Organized crime is terrorizing Russians all over the country striking at the very heart of this infant democracy. In the absence of a strong government, criminals control vast business empires, banks, politicians. Now even young people are disillusioned. Sepchuk became one of the stars of the new democratic Russia. He was a charismatic, larger-than-life figure, a political celebrity. His aide Vladimir Putin, though, was a much smaller figure, always working somewhere in the background but he was fiercely loyal to his boss. The actual work of governing the city, though, was quite difficult. 
the city was absolutely broke and faced possible hunger during the back-to-back winters of 1990 and 1991. Food was so scarce that Sepchuk had to tap a government reserve of canned goods and introduced rationing. In a city where a million people had starved to death less than 50 years earlier, this was a terrifying brush with memory. The arrival of capitalism only seemed to make things worse. As prices were freed, inflation soared, and Russians lost their life savings overnight. And whatever goods they were able to find in stores, they could no longer afford. Russia was getting capitalism, but not the laws or the understanding for how to regulate it. One Russian businessman I know told me that when he and his partners opened a business in Moscow at the time, they didn't even know what a contract was. But Putin, from his experience in Dresden, understood capitalism better than most. As Subchak's deputy, he became the city's main economic arbiter, doling out licenses and mediating business disputes. He also became central to a couple economic schemes that had been intended to help the city, to fill its coffers and feed its citizens. But the food never turned up and over $100 million simply vanished. Along with the economic chaos came crime. St. Petersburg became notorious for its violence in the 1990s. Petty crime was so common that foreign tourists stopped coming to the beautiful old city. Organized crime rings operated virtually unimpeded and they settled their scores out in the open. Once, a prominent businessman was assassinated by a sniper in the middle of the day, in the middle of Nevsky Prospekt, the city's main avenue. And as the nerve center of the city's business bureaucracy, Putin always seemed to be one handshake away, as we say in Russian, from organized crime. One company on whose board Putin sat was investigated by German authorities for money laundering and its links to the Kali drug cartel. So there's this oligarch, I cannot name him because it was the -the off-the-record conversation, but he told me that his friends, it was mid-90s, they came from Geneva, they were Swiss. And the woman brought to this fully criminalized city her best and very, very expensive jewelry. This is Russian investigative journalist Yevgenia Albatz. So she had it in her purse. And when they walked the streets, you know, some passerby just took it from her shelf. So this oligarch, he was friends with Putin. He called Putin and said, listen, my friends from Geneva, blah, blah, blah. And that's what happened. And Putin said, you know, call me in a couple of hours. To cut the long story short, when the couple returned back to their hotel, her purse was on the bed. Everything was there. Everything was returned. So it tells you that he was, you know, pretty much in control of mafia of St. Petersburg. In this environment, the Dvor proved incredibly useful. The Dvor and the kinds of neighborhoods where Putin grew up did not offer much opportunity for a Soviet child. Some, like Putin or like my father, escaped its orbit and built successful careers. But many others followed their parents into crushing blue-collar work or into crime. There, the rules of the city dvor became the rules of the prison dvor. And unsurprisingly, they were not all that different. But in post-Soviet Russia, when the jewels of the Soviet industrial empire were suddenly up for grabs, when capitalism started taking root and generating fast, easy money, Knowing the rules of the dvor and the panyatia of the criminal world into which it fed proved invaluable, 
for the men fighting over oil fields and bauxite mines, and for Vladimir Putin. So in the Dvor, money wasn't really an object. There was nothing to really fight for because the Dvor was just asphalt and like some sticks and like snow. That's it. Whereas like later on, you would have resources to fight for. This is Andrew Rivkin, a Russian-American writer who grew up in St. Petersburg. I would say that's when these Dvor values died in them. I would say not all of them, but the more benevolent ones where you protect people, where you can't commit crime against those who are weaker than you. The good qualities, they died off because like money entered into the game, real power entered into the game. And it was all about advancing yourself to like new heights of money and power. And in that sense, they didn't follow any rules. No rules were written for them. The Soviet legal system stopped working and the Dvor system also stopped working because the country was introduced to capitalism. And I remember like I've read some memoirs where, you know, you would have these like very respected and storied criminals, much like the Italian mafia, with a very strict set of rules. They would be old and, you know, they would be widely respected. They would look in horror at what was happening in the 90s because no one abided by any rules, including those of the Dvor. You would bring a gun to a fistfight. There was no limits. Hi, this is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. One of the core rules in the Dvor was loyalty. Loyalty to your team was everything. And while loyally working for Sapchak in St. Petersburg, Putin met the men who would become his loyal team, people whose names we still hear today, people like Dmitry Medvedev, for example. 30 years later, these people, like Medvedev, like the Rottenberg brothers who were in Putin's judo club when they were all kids, are still Putin's loyal team. They cycle through government positions and contracts like musical chairs. They are rewarded for their loyalty, always, and never punished for incompetence. Because those are the rules Volodya Putin learned in the Dvor. But while he was still in his 40s and working his way up in Russian politics, Putin understood innately how important it was to find the big guy in the Dvor and align yourself with him, to serve him loyally. It was the only way to survive. At first, it was Sapchak who gave Putin his start in politics. True to Dvor rules, Putin would remain loyal to Sapchak and his family for decades after the mayor's death, even when Sapchak's daughter began to publicly criticize him. But in 1996, after Sapchak lost his re-election bid, Putin didn't know what to do. For a while, he thought he'd feed his family by driving a taxi. But before long, he found another start to hitch himself to. In August of that year, Putin moved to Moscow to serve in Boris Yeltsin's administration. When Putin arrived, he was a relative nobody, 
an outsider unfamiliar with the treacherous world of Moscow politics and the Kremlin. But in the chaos of Yeltsin's government, he took advantage of the constant personnel changes and began rising up the ladder. He quickly proved himself to be a master bureaucrat and fiercely loyal to Yeltsin. Before long, Yeltsin promoted Putin to lead the KGB's successor, the FSB. Andrew Weiss of Carnegie recalls meeting Putin during this period. It was the first time that Western officials who were not doing work at the consulate in Leningrad had a chance to deal with Vladimir Putin on major international matters. And it gave us a sense of him before it became clear he was going to be the next president of Russia. He was a very careful, very sort of scripted, low-key, somewhat officious Soviet functionary, but he was not this kind of larger-than-life personality that we see on display nowadays. The Vladimir Putin that first was exposed to American officials in the late 1990s seemed rather unsure of himself. He wasn't a natural-born politician. He's not a naturally gregarious person that would knock your socks off. By the time Putin arrived in Moscow in 1996, Yeltsin was already in sharp decline. In 1994, he had gone to war against the tiny, mostly Muslim Republic of Chechnya after it declared independence. And he lost. Badly. He often appeared drunk in public. He slurred his words. His approval rating was in the single digits, and he barely won re-election in March 1996. Afterwards, he barely survived a quintuple bypass. As his second and last presidential term neared its end, he was barely there. The country was run in his stead by a group of oligarchs who had gotten rich in the 1990s, and Yeltsin's daughter and son-in-law. When it came time to pick Yeltsin's successor, these regents looked for someone they could control, and who would allow them to keep all the money that accumulated, often by shady means. Putin seemed perfect. He was a great bureaucrat without much of a personality, but he seemed to take loyalty incredibly seriously, and he promised not to go after the Yeltsin family. In Russia, for the fourth time in just 17 months, President Boris Yeltsin has fired his cabinet and prime minister. So, strike the name Sergei Stepashin and get used to hearing about Vladimir Putin. In August of 1999, Putin was appointed prime minister, the second in command to the Russian president. Then, on New Year's Eve, a slurring and exhausted Yeltsin stunned the nation. In a televised address, he announced that he was stepping down as president and appointing his prime minister, Vladimir Putin, as the interim president. In March, there would be elections, and the kingmakers hoped that Putin would be elected president, which would give him a legitimate mandate to rule. But there was only one problem. Most Russians had no idea who Putin was. Even in Russia, Vladimir Putin is an unknown, but apparently has two crucial attributes. He is extremely loyal to Boris Yeltsin, and Yeltsin likes him. The campaign spin doctors, or political technologists as they're called in Russia, came up with an idea, a campaign biography, American style. But unlike American campaigns, they had less than three months to put it together, publish it, and publicize it, all before the March 26th presidential election. So they found a shortcut. They hired three of the most famous political journalists in Russia, three young hotshots, and arranged for them a series of interviews with Putin, with his wife, with his German teacher, with his childhood friends, 
Then they edited the transcripts and put out what was essentially a series of Q&As as a book. They called it At Pervova Lietza, from the first person. It's the biography we've been quoting from earlier in this podcast. It's a political document carefully calibrated to make Putin appeal to the Russian people. But given his intense secrecy, it's also the source of most of what we know about Putin's early life and childhood. By the way, I tried to interview the three journalists who did the interviews for first person. None of them agreed. One, who was still living in Russia and under Putin's harsh military censorship, told me she wouldn't speak to me about anything, not even the weather. The government does a lot of polling at this point, and they've hired political consultants from the United States and from the West to actually help with this. So they're thinking about branding this guy. It was all highly orchestrated and set up because it was a campaign biography or autobiography. And the fact that he's listed as an author tells you everything. It just, I think, gets at this dynamic of this is a person who's plucked out of the back room, who's a back room kind of operative, who helps make the trains run on time and helps make sure that the boss has his briefcase and all that kind of stuff, but was not seen as someone who was deep selected for greatness or the leadership qualities that he's amply displayed. He doesn't look if people are just glancing at him like anything other than an ordinary man. People are basically around him are making somewhat disparaging comments, actually, when they're asked about who is Putin. They're suggesting he was nobody. They were saying that he was somebody who hadn't been very successful in his chosen profession in the KGB. And this whole book tries to put that to rest. The biography provides these new touchstones about who he was, his experiences in the Soviet system, and the fact that his family had suffered and endured so much in the course of World War II. To me, these are the things that you say about someone who's gotten very little else that they can share publicly. And I think they sort of create places for average people to relate to him, but they're not necessarily all true. Remember all that stuff about World War II in episode one? Well, there are two reasons we spend so much time on it. The first is because it truly did shape people of Putin's generation, the Soviet baby boomers. The second is because Putin and his spin doctors spent so much time on it in the book. They thought it was an important way to connect with a Russian audience, one that five decades after the end of the war still saw it as a unifying collective experience. The book centers on this experience in World War II, which you know clearly would be terrible for anybody to experience. It both humanizes Putin and makes him seem like everyone else in the Soviet population who would have endured and lost people. And I think the fact that Putin was directly scarred by it, having lost a sibling and having nearly lost both of his parents, was very resonant. It was just one way that first person tried to make Putin, a gray and faceless bureaucrat, have wider appeal, to make him be whoever the beholder wanted him to be, a kind of Russian Rorschach test. But in this book, what's so remarkable is they're trying to tell several stories at once. One is Vladimir Putin as Soviet everyman. He's this person who's not that different from you, the would-be Russian voter, as well as this guy who was a master of the KGB's dark arts and who had served honorably in the Soviet system, even as he somehow harbored his own misgivings about the Soviet system. One of Putin's appeals is to middle-aged women, women of his age and above. The fact that he's sober, clearly not a wife beater. Women in Russia are notorious for having drunken husbands who beat them. 
He also portrays himself as a sensitive father with two daughters, although there's not a lot of information about them. Someone who cares about them when they get into an accident. And something in there, too, for the older people, because he talks a lot about his parents and, you know, makes it very clear that to older people that he wouldn't necessarily be forgetting them either. And then the tough, hard scrabble, I'm a kid from the back streets, is all those people who came of age really in the 90s. It's not just, you know, the people who came of age when he did in the 60s and the 70s. It's the kids who are really trying to find their way in a country that's fallen on hard times. Because so many people in the 1990s, of course, did lose their livelihoods with high unemployment um, as a result of shock therapy, big upsurge in corruption and organised crime. Putin uses a lot of the language now that kind of comes out of those kind of environments because he's also, in fact, appealing to many of the people who engaged in the shadow economy, the black economy. He was obviously involved in it as deputy mayor of St. Petersburg and he's making allusions to people there as well that he might have come into contact with that he's their guy. He's, he's trying to be a man for everyone, a man for all seasons. Personally, I always found it interesting that Putin and his campaign managers wanted to emphasize his childhood in the Dvor, that he wasn't a good student, that he was a punk, a spana, that he was decidedly not a good boy from the intelligentsia. It was a strange choice because being a spana from the Dvor is not exactly celebrated in Russian society. It's not something most people tend to advertise, at least not in elite circles. But apparently, Putin's spin doctors decided that playing up that part of his biography, his hard-scrabbled childhood in the Dvor, wouldn't turn voters off, but would instead appeal to them. Because as we discussed in episode one, most Russians had grown up just like that, or knew someone who had. There is a well-known song in Russia this image of Leonka Karolov, it was the strongest guy in the yard. And I was told by one of his top politicologists back in 2000 that that the kind of message that they were trying to get across, that he's like an older brother to all Russians. He's this Leonka Karolov from your yard who is going to come and defend you. He wasn't your father. He wasn't your grandfather. But, you know... He was your older brother from your The guy who was going to defend you against your neighbor, against your bad boss, against gangsters in your city, against your oligarchs, against God knows. And that was the very foundation of this Putin's myth that his politicologists were creating back in 2000 when he first became the president of the Russian Federation. Putin, who had been so small and scrawny as a kid that he had to sign up for judo to survive in the Dvor, was now suddenly recast as a macho man, a tough guy that takes no guff, like the alpha male in the national and international Dvor. His past jobs in the former KGB and as head of the now reincarnated Federal Security Service historically would have raised suspicions. But for him, they have served as benefits. Polls here are showing a desire for a stronger, more decisive leader after years of a seemingly aimless reform program. The image his spin doctors were going for was also heavily influenced by Putin's childhood hero, 
Alexander Belov, a.k.a. Johann Weiss, the NKVD spy from The Sword and the Shield. As you recall, Putin mentions it in the book First Person. One of my favorite parts about the book was the impact of pop culture on Putin's own self-image and career ambitions. And one of the touchstones of Soviet pop culture was a series of pulp novels all about the sword and the shield, which are the symbols of the Soviet KGB. And they were later turned into a very successful movie. And the star of that movie, he looks a lot like George Clooney in the 1960s would have looked and is this glamorous figure who's always out saving the motherland from bad Nazi or Western enemies. And when the Kremlin was casting around doing focus groups, looking for a successor to Boris Yeltsin, and they asked average people, what do you think are the qualities of a leader? They kept referring to the Soviet character actor who plays the lead in The Sword and the Shield. And the problem for Putin is he doesn't look like George Clooney. And so they needed to really do an extreme makeover of his image and dress him up to make him seem more glamorous and dashing than he actually is. You know, there's a lot of jokes made and memes circulated about Putin in all kinds of different costumes and guises and, you know, everything from what looks like a kind of a James Bond 007 spy figure with his aviator sunglasses and his sharp black suits to, you know, flying microlight aircraft with endangered cranes to riding bareback on horses to, you know, sitting in front of a piano crooning show tunes to playing ice hockey and getting in his judo outfit and just going around and around the country. Those are meant to also appeal to people so people can relate to him in all kinds of different ways. On March 26th of the year 2000, Putin is elected president of Russia. He vows to fight corruption and establish what he calls a dictatorship of the law. In Russia today, the clear winner of the Russian presidential election, Vladimir Putin, began to establish the Putin era. Vladimir Putin, the career spy, talks about establishing what he calls a dictatorship of the law. But gradually, it becomes obvious that he's building just a dictatorship, and one that is incredibly corrupt. His friends from Judo and St. Petersburg are rewarded for their loyalty and become billionaires. And as we would soon learn, part of their job was holding money for Putin and funding his projects, like building a bridge to illegally occupied Crimea or massive palaces for his exclusive use and pleasure. I think at some point the Russian budget became like a huge Toys R Us for him, that you could just do anything. Putin, he has a room all made out of gold, everything, table, chairs, lamps, candelabras, and there are golden leaves. He's all about gold. Because that was, you know, in the Soviet times, gold was manifestation of you being rich. You know, people were not allowed to have property. None of us had any property. But those who had money, they were buying gold. When I came to Russia for a year from the States, like I went to a private school in St. Petersburg where I think every single one of Putin's closest friends put their kids in. I'd visit some of their places and their lack of taste had like no bounds, absolutely. It was all about buying the most expensive thing, but it was also 
in St. Petersburg specifically, it was also about trying to recreate the life of those that came before you, which was the Imperial Russia. Because you grew up inevitably walking the halls of the Hermitage, most of us. You grew up seeing these 20-foot ceilings, this luxury, this faded, faded luxury from that era. You could not see the luxury if you grew up somewhere in Siberia. It just, it would be non-existent. But here, you would see what money looked like, what a palace looks like. So, of course, you know, when you made all that money, and by made, I mean stole, you kind of did want to recreate that in your life, which is true for a lot of people of his generation. In our next and final episode, when it comes to the war in Ukraine, you can take the boy out of the dvor, but you can't take the dvor out of the boy. About a Boy, the story of Vladimir Putin is written and hosted by me, Julia Yaffe, directed by Valerie Thomas, produced by Margot Gray, edited by Chris Basil, mixing and mastering also by Chris Basil, production assistance by Bill Schultz, theme music by Kravastok. Special thanks to John Kelly, Ben Landy, Andrew Rifkin, Alex Bigler, Jenna Weiss Berman, Moura Curran, Josephina Francis, Kurt Courtney, and Hilary Schuff. Listen and follow About a Boy, The Story of Vladimir Putin, an Odyssey original podcast in partnership with Puck on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.